Today is Pentecost Sunday, as we said earlier, and um, I'd like to share with you beginning in Joel chapter 2. If you remember on that first Pentecost day in Acts chapter 2, um, Joel 2 was the text that Peter used for his sermon. Uh, he didn't announce a, announce a text or anything else. He just got up and started preaching. But it was taken from, he was quoting from, from Joel 2. But he only quoted half the chapter. So um, I want to go back this morning to start off with and pick up um, the background behind the sermon. In Joel chapter 2, you have a time of God's judgment upon Israel. And it came in the form of a, a plague of locusts. And they have those occasionally, but this one was a very, very severe one. Um, much more intense, much more destructive than all the others. And so um, in Joel chapter 2, the first 11 verses, it talks about this plague. And the point is that the prophet was seeing God's hand in this plague as an act of judgment because of the sins of the people. These were people who are the people of God, who had the scriptures, who had the prophets, who had the patriarchs. They had um, all of these things and yet they had turned their hearts and their lives against God. And so this plague came. And uh, to get a summary of it is in verse three, 3, fire devours before them and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness and nothing escapes. And so that's where they were. And he talks about God sending these, um, this plague and uh, he likens it to an invading army. And then he changes in verse 12, in the midst of God's judgment, like normally happens, there's a call to repentance. And so even as this judgment is coming upon them, he issues this statement, yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents, from, he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and drink offering for the Lord your God. Now this was Joel coming to the people of Israel. Uh, in the book of Jonah, we've got a, a man who was more or less contemporary with Joel, he's called by God to go to the Ninevites. The Ninevites were pagans. They were Assyrians. They were, um, in their day, their worst enemy. They hated them. They feared them. And God called Jonah to go and preach repentance to the people of Nineveh. Jonah was a patriot. He said, I'm not going and God changed his mind, changed Jonah's mind, that is, and uh, put a strong hand upon him, and Jonah went. Jonah preached a very short sermon, and the whole city, one of the capital cities of Assyria, from the king on the throne to the animals in the stall, the king made a decree. He got up, took his robes off, set his crown aside, put on sackcloth, got down, humbled himself in the ashes, a sign of mourning and intense emotion. 
And he made a decree that everyone in the whole city, including the animals, they're not going to eat anything. They're not going to drink anything. They are going to cry out to God and change their lifestyle. And they said, who knows? Maybe God will relent and forgive us. And God took notice. The people that Joel was talking to were God's people. The people that knew the will of God. And they were in rebellion and they did not repent. So it's letting us know. And yet God in the midst of judgment is still giving this gracious offer for repentance. And um, he says beginning with verse 21 of Joel 2. God says, if there's repentance and genuine sorrow and returning after me, then the Lord brings his blessing. And part of the blessing that it says from verses 21 and 22, it's not just the people, but it's on the land. It's on the productivity of the crops. It's on all of nature. And then he gives this promise in verse 25. I will restore to you the years that the locust has eaten. We sometimes quote that, but we take it out of context. The context is repentance, (laughs) crying out to God, changing lifestyle. Um, The blessings do not come upon us as we're living and deliberately rebelling against God. And then he says, this is where Peter picks up on Acts chapter 2, starting with verse 28. It shall come to pass afterward... Afterward, after the judgment, after the repentance, after the blessings, afterward, it shall come to pass, I shall pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And Peter says this is part of what was being fulfilled on the day of Pentecost because this promise is for everyone. And as Peter is going to sum up at the end of his sermon, the promise is to you and to your children and to your children's children. Promise of God. Pouring out his spirit upon all flesh. Young and old, men and women, rich and poor, makes no difference in God's grace. And he says... I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. I want you to think a minute what happened this past week. Um, We have slaughter in the school in Santa Fe. There's the blood. Got the earthquakes erupting In Hawaii, there's the fire. And the ash column is going miles and miles up in the air. They're having to divert air traffic around it, billows of smoke. So if you're looking for signs, there they are. Now these signs have happened many times, and they probably will again. But what we're saying is that if we're looking at the signs of the times, then we need to take to heart what the sign means, right? Uh, You know the word significance? What does that word mean? Something that's important. How do you spell significance? The first part of that word is sign. 
So we look at these signs and we think, well, you know, these signs have happened and it's written in the scripture. Okay. So is that a call to repentance? Is that a God trying to speak to us saying, um, I'm getting your attention here? You're going to hear a lot of talk about gun control coming up. But you know they had pipe bombs too. So they're going to try to talk about, uh, you know, passing laws against guns. Maybe they need to, pop to pass laws against pipes. You see, it's not the gun and it's not the pipe. If you do not change the people's heart, none of those laws are going to make any difference at all. It will not make a difference. If the heart is geared toward violence and death and killing, all the laws in the world are not going to stop it. So it's the heart that needs to change. In our country here, we have sown the wind and we are beginning to reap the whirlwind because we've taken scriptures out of schools. Um, we've passed laws. They're talking about saying, you know, we're not going to allow scripture in our state, you know, things like this. I wonder if the people of California would pray if this happened in their state. There's many calls to prayer. Everybody who got up and spoke uh, at this place, all the government uh, officials and elected officials, they're all praying and calling for prayer, and rightly so. So, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's the promise. So we're asking that God would pour out His Spirit upon us. Um, and so in the, in the Gospels, what they're saying was that in order for that to take place, this is why Jesus came and died on the cross. In order that the Holy Spirit might come upon a sinful people. Because if the Holy Spirit comes upon sinful people, we will die. Because he is holy and we are not. So Jesus dies on the cross to enable us to be in a position of receiving the Holy Spirit when he comes. Because the blood of Christ cleanses us and brings that forgiveness, that change of heart that results in a change of lifestyle. If there's no change in lifestyle, there's been no change in heart. And it has nothing to do with being sorry has everything to do with wanting to change. So we can be sorry for a lot of reasons. I know a lot of sorry people. And I'm often one myself. Uh, it was like a, I used to work for a lumberyard and there was a, there was a, a old black man that used to work there. He had a, a very severe drinking problem. Good worker, hard worker. But if you got paid on Friday, you would not see him on Monday. And, um, and he, he struggled with it and fought with it, and it just had a control over him. And, and he was always very repentant, always filled with um, good intentions. But he came in, and he was talking to the boss one day, and he said, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. If I was the boss, I'd fire my own self. <laughs> I can identify with him, you know? And God reaches down to people like him and me and the rest of us. And he says, um, I'm not giving up on you. And so this is why Jesus has come. In, Act, in Luke 24, and he says it again in Acts chapter 1, 
that Jesus is telling them that the power of the Holy Spirit will come upon them. But what's the purpose of his coming? We often talk about the power and everything, but what is the purpose of the Holy Spirit coming upon people in power? It's for them to be witnesses of who Jesus is. That's the purpose of the power. It's not to glorify them. It's not to, to have an audiovisual. It's not to impress people. It's there for witness, to get the word of God into their hearts and lives. And so the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and when he does, the result is witness. And so we see that taking place in the book of Acts chapter 2. And so on the day of Pentecost, when it had fully arrived, they were all suddenly, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak. I want us to stop right there for a minute. Because we get all hung up on what they're saying. But the purpose of the Holy Spirit's coming was to be a witness. And the result of the Holy Spirit coming upon them was they began to speak. And they began to speak in other languages which they themselves did not know. But the people who heard them understood every word in their own native dialect. They say your mother tongue is the language that you dream in. And it was that language that God was speaking to those people from whatever part of the world they were from. And so God was pouring out his spirit upon them. And as you read through the Old Testament, you've got these great tremendous passages of scripture that talk about it. God says to Jeremiah, Behold, I'm making my words in your mouth a fire. Later on, he's, God says uh, to Jeremiah, Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. In Psalm 39, verse 3, David says he was meditating, and while he meditated, my heart became hot, and as I mused, the fire burned. Later on, again, Jeremiah in chapter 20, verse 9 says he was going to not speak anymore in the name of God because um, every time he did, he was persecuted for it. And so he said, I'm not going to speak anymore. But what happened? In my heart, a burning fire, and I am weary with holding it in. Elihu, who is one of the counselors of Job, says, I am full of words. The spirit within me constrains me and I must speak to find relief. After the resurrection, Jesus was walking with a couple of disciples on the road to Emmaus. They did not know who he was. But afterwards, when he was revealed to them, they were talking to each other and they said, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road while he opened to us the scriptures, word of God. And so on the day of Pentecost, there were tongues of fire, the word of God coming down, filled in them with the presence of the Holy Spirit, and he began, they began to speak, and the tongues 
that came out of heaven and sat upon each one of them entered into them in the person of the Holy Spirit and the tongues that were over their head became the tongues that were speaking the word of God the flaming words of God were going out from them and it had an effect they weren't just words were they our world is filled with words most of them meaningless and empty often they're foolish or evil but the word of God creates life transforms people creates something out of nothing and so we look around and we say my heart is dead within me that's okay God speaks a word and he creates life and the earth was empty and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and God spoke and into that darkness came light and life and all of creation it's a creative powerful word from God and that's what was being spoken on the day of Pentecost and so the result is this very powerful witness and so what's taking place all these people and it lists a bunch of these different nations and it says each one of us we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God and so they're not just saying anything they're proclaiming the power and the words and the works of God and so they're going to ask a question all were amazed and perplexed saying to one another what does this mean and here they are looking for significance they've seen the sign they've heard it they've experienced it now they want to know the interpretation and the application and if we're just happy with the sign, then the sign has failed in its purpose, hasn't it? Because the sign is meant to create the question in the heart. What does this mean? And later on, after he tells them what it's going to mean, they're going to ask another question. Men and brothers, what shall we do? And that's the proper sequence of events. So it's not just information. What does this mean? And he told them. Then it comes, how do we put this into practice? What do we do? So it's the correct, it's the correct question. They're telling about the works of God. Way back in Genesis 12, before the creation of Israel, God speaks through Abraham and he's calling him out to, to begin the nation. And he tells him that God is going to bless him and that he will be a blessing and all the nations on the earth will be blessed. As Jesus ascended into heaven in Matthew 28, he told the disciples to go into all the world and make disciples. And he tells them, you shall be my witnesses to the end of the earth. Pentecost was the first fruit. That was the down payment, the beginning of the fulfillment of that prophecy and that commandment. He began it in their days and that commandment has never ceased. So it's not just a call to go across the nations, although that's included. But as you look at the commandment, the commandment is you begin at home. And if you're not going to be a witness here, you're not going to be a witness overseas. It's harder here in a lot of different ways. Uh, the hardships overseas are of a different category. They're, it's hard, let me tell you. 
and there's opposition and, and um, battles to be fought, but they're on a different level and a different kind than you have here at home. Um, at least there, there are people that are open and responsive and people eager to hear. And God is looking for those kinds of things. So Pentecost was the first fruit of what Joel had prophesied and what Jesus had commanded. And so he begins to tell them. And so um, he starts with Joel and then he quickly moves on to Jesus of Nazareth. For them, that was, that was uh, what, 50 days before. And because... Passover, when Jesus was crucified, was another one of these days when everybody was supposed to be in Jerusalem. Many of those people on Pentecost had been there at Passover and they knew what he was talking about. Some of them had participated. Some of them had seen. Everybody in Jerusalem was aware of the public executions that had taken place outside the city walls. They all were new. They all knew about it. And so when he's talking to them about Jesus of Nazareth, they know who he's talking about. Some of those people had been healed. Many of them had seen the miracles. Many of them had seen him and even touched him. And they knew who he was talking about. And those who were from out of town had heard. This would have been a topic that they would still be talking about. And so he's talking to them about Jesus And he's saying, this is all part of God's plan, but you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men, but God raised him up, loosing him from him the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And he talks some scriptures about David. And um, he said, Jesus is his descendant and he is the Messiah. And so he sums up here in verse 36 of Acts chapter 2. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you, were, whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. So you remember that um, in Hebrews chapter 4, it talks about the word of God, which is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, pierces even to the dividing apart of soul and spirit, joint and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of our hearts. So, again, looking at current events in our time, the blood and the fire and the smoke that we've seen this past week, they asked Jesus at one time, Uh, about the signs of the end. And he says, well, you're not really going to know specifically, but I'll give you some general guidelines. And those are the ones that we talked about. One of the things he included was, as in the days of Noah. You remember? So what were the days of Noah like? Well, if you read Genesis chapter 6, you're going to find two or three reasons that God decided to destroy, wipe out the whole earth, every living thing. The thoughts and intents of their hearts were always wicked and evil continually. And the second reason, they filled the earth with violence. So the wickedness of the heart of men 
continually. And the violence. And Jesus told them there in Matthew 24, in the days of Noah, people carried on their life as if nothing had changed and nothing was happening. Marrying, giving into marriage, partying, having a great time, moving on as if God did not exist until the day that the flood came and wiped them all away. And so we can shake our heads and say, oh man, that's, that's terrible what happened over there. Um, it's over there. What's over there? It's not here. We're okay. We just go on as usual, right? Maybe a passing sorrow, maybe even a passing prayer for those people over there, but otherwise, business as usual for us. Nothing's changed. What will it take? When it's your child, when it's my child, maybe God will get our attention. So, as in the days of Noah, we're living in them. And again, um, it's happened often. And it's the kind of thing, uh, as we look at the words of prophecy, God warns us about what is coming so that we'll know what to do and how to pray. And so if this is going on, what kind of people, as Peter says, ought we to be? We ought to be looking in our hearts, changing our lives, and we ought to be praying. And so they're asking the proper questions now. And the Word of God, um, Paul says in Ephesians 6, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And here the, the fire has come down upon these men and women, 120 of them. They've scattered out, they've spoken, and the Word of God, that flaming sword of God's Word, is piercing the hearts of people. When it pierces the heart, it changes the life. It's a transformation that takes place. And so these people were pierced to the heart and they cry out. This is a spontaneous reaction on their part. They haven't sat down and thought this through. It's not a carefully reasoned out thing. It's the cry of their heart and of their spirit crying out to God. Men and brothers, what shall we do? God has fulfilled his promise, sent the anointed, the Christ, and we slaughtered him. What are we going to do? You remember the parables that Jesus taught about how the king sent servants and they abused some and they, they killed some and then he said, I'll send my son because they will respect him. They said, this is the heir. Let's kill him and then the whole place will be ours. And they killed him. And then Jesus asked the people, what will be the response of the king? They said, he will slaughter those miserable wretches and let out his vineyard to someone better suited for it. They condemned themselves. It wasn't just a story. By your own words, we shall be judged. Now later on in another sermon... Peter makes this statement. It's a great statement. In Acts chapter 3, verse 26.
And um, I'm going to start with verse 25. He's talking to many of the same people. And he said, You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, that's Jesus, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. You want the blessings of God? God said, I've sent my son to you to give you this blessing, to turn you from your wickedness. That's the blessing that God still gives to us. And the result is forgiveness of sin, entering into the kingdom of God, and the promise is to you and to your children and to your children's children, as many as the Lord our God shall call. That promise is still in effect today. And Jesus has come and he still seeks to bless us even at this late time in our country. Calling us to repentance and forgiveness. And so, you know, Paul talks about um, letting the word of God dwell in you richly. How does it do that? Through your flesh and blood what takes place in your body how you use it and what you use it for that's how the word of God lives in you so uh, Jesus came and um, he said the word, he was the word of God in the flesh and what he seeks to do is to include us in that and it's an invitation to participate in the very life of God and that's what Jesus came to give. And it's a great invitation, isn't it? Uh, in our church, we have communion every Sunday. Uh, we need it. It's good for us. Um, and the way that we look at it, we're all sinners, saved by the grace of God. And if you're a visitor here, you are more than welcome to participate with us. Um, don't want you to feel pressured or obligated. You're not in any way. We just want you to know the invitation includes you. And if you want to, then you are welcome to participate this morning. Um, we also will have people uh, at either side here that would be willing to pray with you if there's anything that you would like someone to pray with you about. Um, and again, that's just if you choose to or if you want to. Um, we have people that know how to pray, and they will be happy to pray with you. Um, and the invitation comes from John chapter 7. you ever go through the day and um, you're busy and you're involved in stuff and you lose track of time and you find out that you've gone all day, you hadn't had anything to eat and everything's going fine and, and uh, then you walk by someplace that has the aroma of some food, maybe it's your favorite food and you catch a whiff of that and all of a sudden you realize, I'm hungry. Or you've gone through, you've been working out in the hot sun and uh, 
doing a lot of sweating and things and haven't had a chance to take a break and you're working and you're working and finally you just stop and you realize, man, I need a drink of water. Uh, my mouth is dry. My throat is dry. I, I just realized I need some water. There was a feast day, Feast of Tabernacles. It lasts a week. At the end of it, it's a, it's a big celebration. Again, all the people of Israel are supposed to be gathered there. And at the end of it, uh, they have a holy convocation. They have a church meeting. Everybody's invited. Everybody's there. And in the midst of it, uh, the high priest has a, uh, a silver pitcher and a golden basin. And he has, it's full of water. And they pour out a drink offering before God. And on that particular day, a place crowded full of people. It's the holy sacred moment because the priest is pouring out um, the drink offering before God. And Jesus stands up and he shouts out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And you know, there were people there that once he said that, they realized how dry and empty they were. He said, if you come to me, out of your inmost being will flow rivers of living water. And the writer of John's gospel says, this he spoke about the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit hadn't come yet because, the whole, because Jesus Christ hadn't been glorified yet. On the day of Pentecost, this was fulfilled. And so those streams of living water came upon those apostles and those other men and women in that upper room and as they were proclaiming, the rivers were flowing and they found people who were hungering and thirsty. So if you're dry and if you're empty, uh, this is what this is for. If you're filled to overflowing and you just want to rejoice, this is what this is for. If our hearts are just filled with gratitude and praise, if we find ourselves sunk in sin and want a way out, this is what it's for. If we're hurting, this is a place of comfort. If we're sick, this is a place of healing. And so the invitation comes from the Lord and from the Holy Spirit who he had poured out upon us abundantly. He is here. So this is because on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And after he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat. This is my body. It's broken for you. In the Old Testament, they had um, the showbread. They made it fresh every week and put it there, 12 loaves, one for each one. It was called the bread of the presence. And for us Christians, Jesus Christ is the bread of the presence. Then after supper, he took the cup. And after he had given thanks, he gave it to his disciples saying, each of you drink from this cup. This cup is a new covenant in my blood. It's shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Remember, the scripture tells us plainly, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And Jesus shed his blood for you and for me. And so we ask the question then, what does this mean? What shall we do? It means Jesus died for you. He died for me. Then what shall we do? Got two options. 
We can come and accept what God has done for us. Or we can turn our back and walk away. If we say, I'll put it off, that is an answer is no. That's another way of turning your back. So we have two options. Receive or don't. And that's the options that we have. So will those who are serving communion please come forward? Body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, preserve your soul and body and everlasting life. this in remembrance that Christ died for you. Feed on him in your heart by faith with thanksgiving. Take this food forgive us for all our sins. Amen. 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 Thank you. Let's continue in prayer. Dear Lord, we come before you today thankful for your many wonderful blessings you do for us. Thanking you for your son Jesus and the great sacrifice that he made for me, for each one of us on the cross. Father, we continue to lift up our, our hearts to you. Father, we are so thankful to you, so grateful to you for the gift that you have given us. The gift that is so, so, we are unable to attach value to because it's so, so valuable. We thank you for that. We thank you for the love that let it happen. And Lord, may we open our hearts and our minds to commemorate the price that was paid for us. Bless us now as we partake of these emblems. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. The gifts of God for the people of God. Will you come? <clears throat>